Welcome to The Wayfinder Show with Adam Lacey and Luis Hernandez, where guests discuss the why and how of making changes in their life that led them down a greater, more authentic path or allowed them to level up in some area of their life. Our goal is to dig deep and provide not only knowledge, but actionable advice to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Come join us and find the way to your dream life. All right, welcome back to the Wayfinder Show. Adam, how are you feeling? You know, man, in general, life is great. But like I mentioned, it's just one of those days where it's like everything. I feel like I'm like stubbing my toe everywhere. I, I just spilled a 20 ounces of water all over my desk right before we jumped on. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those days. But life, but general life is good, man. How about you? Oh, it's wild, man. I think I told you my wife's into all that horoscope, galactical, spiritual <laughs> stuff, right? And she, I told you, she, she sent me something yesterday. She's like, this is going to be a crazy week, you know, like... Uranus is going over Jupiter <laughs> and all this stuff. So, you know, watch out. So, and, and that's what causes water to spill all over the place, right? Yeah, so, it, was, it was Uranus. That's right. That's, it always is, man. <laughs> Yo, well, I'm really excited about today's show because we got what, a, a very old friend of mine. We went to high school together. Uh, actually, I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about him. So, uh, uh, his name is Andres Sorry Indiana. in advance, Andres. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's okay. His name is Andres Iraga. Andres is actually younger than me. I remember we, we come from similar backgrounds where I think Andres was actually born in Medellin, Colombia, but my parents, for me, it was my parents. And we grew up together in the same town as Central Falls. You guys heard the background in my episode. But um, uh, I was a little bit older and I was in the honors classes. So I thought I was pretty smart and, you know, I'd usually be the first one done with everything and get the best scores. All right. And then out of nowhere comes this guy, Andres, and he's in my classes. And not only that, but he's like a couple of years younger than me. And I'm thinking like, what is this young kid trying to, you know, do? And, and of course he's getting better scores. He's faster to him, all that. He's just kicking my ass. And then I think we became friends for that year. And then he moved on pretty quickly to a, uh, to another school, which was a pretty elite private school. I'm sure he can tell you all about that. And and you just knew Andres from back then that he was going places. He was the guy who was just really going to take Central Falls to another level and like get out there. And and uh, he, he was going to take it places. So it, it's a real honor for me to have Andres here to share his story. So uh, Andres, welcome to the Wayfinder Show. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, remember you very well, fondly and <laughs> have very fun memories of Central Falls as well. Yeah, thanks. So Andres, let's, let's get right into it. I could have started by saying, you know, things that, you, you know, you're a lawyer, you're an entrepreneur, you're a father, you're an educator, you're a husband, uh, you're, an, you're just, you know, an ass kicker in life. Uh, what, but what, how would, how'd you get there? Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> with a lot of us that grew up in certain contexts, I think is getting your butt kicked a lot. You know, a lot of failures cause you to kind of question who you are, where you're going, and the like. I think successes in life um, are, are great, are sweet, but I think failures really test you in a different way to force you to really think about what are the anchor morals, what are the anchor dreams you have in your life, and how you go about them. And when we speak about growing up in Central Falls, Rhode Island, a place where to this day, the per capita GDP is around $12,000, which is one of the poorest places in all the country when you think about the per capita GDP, one of the most densely populated cities. In the 2000s, Central Falls High School was all over the New York Times as one of the most dysfunctional high schools in the country. Um, there's a lot of, you go through a lot of peaks and valleys in those types of places growing up. One of my peaks, you were mentioning high school that I moved on from Central Falls. And the reason I moved on is in 10th grade, I was in, as you know, I was in class with older students. In 10th grade, um, <clears throat> I had finished all the classes that Central Falls could offer me. And Carol Silver, who was a guidance counselor in Central Falls, and big shout out to her. I think uh, she passed away not too long ago, but she was a terrific oh. guidance counselor, took an interest in me. And um, put me aside and, you know, as certain teachers had said, look, you have great potential. Um, we think we want to get some schools interested in you because you're basically at this year, you're finishing, uh, you're finishing everything that the school has to offer. There's no more classes we can offer you. And she, 
um, managed to get me a scholarship to the Moses Brown School. It's very elite uh, prep, Northeastern prep school. And I really know much about that world, but for people um, that are in the know in, the know in that world, uh, Moses Brown is a school where we play sports against Phillips Exeter Andover Academy. He's very posh's of posh Northeast prep schools. And it was, a, it was very jarring. This was what I would call kind of one of the peaks in my life. I get the scholarship. You know, people around me are proud. My family is proud. Um, but it was, I was during proud. a tough time. <laughs> it was during a tough time in my life. And I didn't wasn't re be really able to take the reins of this opportunity and ride it for all it had. Um, later on, I ended up dropping it out of Moses Brown. Um, and some of the issues I never, I, I, I did well academically compared to the rest of the kids in the school. And I, I took a lot of pride in that because for me, I felt like I wanted to show the school that they made a right choice talent wise to give somebody like me a chance. And Moses Brown is a school that built itself as sending about a third of its kids to the Ivy Leagues, even though I quite didn't understand what that meant. I knew it was important, but I didn't really realize recognize the impact of what that could mean as a kid never had really seen anybody um, go on to higher education and go on to uh, the successes that higher education could bring and show us in our neighborhood what that could mean it was never really tangible so when um, guidance counselors at Moses Brown or even when I did that well at Moses Brown I didn't really understand the long-term impacts of it and what it also did to me at that time as a, a mature kid is it it forced me to, to begin to question my context in the world. Like Moses Brown was a place I was supposed to make it to. You know, when, you, when you're one of these kids that do well in inner cities, people label you as one of the kids that can make it out, one of the kids that go somewhere. And Moses Brown was sort of this, one of these places that you're supposed to make it out to. But it was the very first time I was dealing with kind of that duality. You're supposed to, there's a value system place on the, there's a value system place on the places you come from and one place, on the places you're going to. And that value system become comparative. If I'm supposed to go to these places, there's some, there should be something wrong where, where I'm from. And you start dealing with this in an immature mm -hmm. way. And what it forced me to do was sort of be defensive about where I was from and kind of retreat to the worst aspects of it. So I go to this Northeast prep school, but I live in Central Falls, Rhode Island, where you know, drugs are prevalent, the, the street culture looks a little bit different, uh, poverty is rampant. And I began to be defensive of that place in a way that was destructive to me. I said, this is where, I really, where I'm really from. That is not me. Um, this sort of educational, whitish culture is, is not me. This is yeah. where I'm from. And it made me sort of elevate to a higher plane the worst negative aspects of where I'm from. I didn't take into account um, you know, the hardworking immigrant aspects of our community the people that make miracles on minimum wage. It was more about the worst aspects that sort of um, had an allure and it was a defensive appeal and allure to me at that time. And I said, my life started spiraling out of control. But to hey, Andres, can story, I ask you a question mm -hmm. real quick? So mm -hmm. if you didn't have this long-term vision of what your life could be, what, what caused you to drive so hard to get such good grades, get enough good grades and, and do well mm -hmm. enough in school that you got a scholarship to Moses Brown? Well, what was mm -hmm. that driving factor? Was it just trying to be competitive? Um, yes, competitive in a sense and disciplined in, in another. So one of the things that you know, I come from an immigrant family. My mother comes from a place called Antioquia, uh, Colombia, in the, in the eastern part of it where there was a, in the 80s and 90s, there was a pretty strong civil war going on. It's, they're rural folks, they're very poor. They came to this country, you know, the certain time, a certain point I was in this country, there was about eight people living in a two bedroom apartment. And everybody was extremely hardworking. And my mother used to make me get on my hands and knees and clean the tiles of the apartment with a hand rack, one by one by one. And she used to make my younger brother do that too. And we used to ask her, why do you make us do this? Well, we could just have a mop and mop it and what have you. And she said, no, because I have you. And it is still like this sort of rigorous discipline that your immigrant parents instill with you always carried in me that I needed to work hard. Yeah. And, and I began to sense why they were doing that. Our parents were almost never home. My father sometimes worked double shifts. And then my mother and my father separated. 
They both made minimum wage. So they go in for their early shifts and, and low wage minimum shifts start at five, six in the morning, right? And they come home around 2.30, 3, 3.30, and then some do a, a, a second shift. We almost not, my brother and I almost never had our parents home. Um, and we always sort of kind of had to fend for ourselves a little bit, even though there was a lot of movement in the house, but people are going from work, coming from work, things like that nature. So that discipline always made me want to do everything that I did well. Um, and, and it began, you know, they, they instilled kind of that immigrant work ethic in us. Um, and Andres. then when I, when I did well, I became competitive about it too. Yeah. You know, I wanted to get, if it was a grade, I wanted to get a grade. I was to play sports. I wanted to do well in sports and things like that. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that we all, you know, being in that community and I'm thinking of, do you think there was something more to just that, like, you know, in Spanish, we have that saying, la pujanza paisa, right? Like the, that there's a, a drive to push like that, that we, so, you know, our parents told us like we had within us to, to, to work harder, be, get more, hustle more, just, you know, be better, right? Like, because we were from, we're paisas, right? Like we're from this part of Medellin where they call us paisa. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, there probably is, you know, you, if you go to Medellin, that type of mentality saying is very prevalent. Sure. Um, everybody, un paisa, un berraco, is somebody that's always push, pushing right. forward. Um, I think there is that. <clears throat> Sometimes that could be to our detriment as well. Sure. Of and course. this is, and, and, and this sense, a lot of times I think uh, when we're low income and when we haven't acquired the skills to really know the difference between strategy and tactics, we work hard at small things. And what I mean by that, sometimes a lot of the folks that are, we're working hard in this community, we work hard, but we sort of create this cage of ourselves and funnel ourselves to jobs that are low paying, low income. We don't step back and be more strategic and say, how do we build up our skill set so our earning potential, our human capital is increasing, our earning potentials increase. Um, earlier, when I was when I was trying to try to think of a not a long winded way to get you folks to the point where I went to Mozambique and my life spiral control, then I went to prison. Um, and, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit, but it was during that time, during those lulls in my life, that I thought I could shut my brain down from survival mode, just kind of always working on tactics. I'm working hard, but I'm not really sure if what I'm working hard makes sense. Obviously, when I was on the street and doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, obviously that made no sense. But sometimes you could be in the community working at a job that is barely getting you by. And the way you try to solve it is by picking up extra ships. That is never going to get you out of you know, right. the situation you're in. I mean, it could in, or in the long term. So let, let, me, let me be a little bit more forgiving of that. It could in the long term. But if you step back and you say, look, what is my savings right now? What loans can I take out? And if I go get a, an associate's degree at college, what does my earning potential look then? What do I study? What has the highest earning potential in the community right now, et cetera? When you're more strategic, you're, you're better. So sometimes even that hard work, it, you know, it, it's great, but it, it, sometimes it's a lot of times it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we'll go to your question earlier about kind of what are those, you know, I think key moments really is, is when you're in the valleys that you have the moments that allow you to set the anchors that I was telling you, the anchors that really kind of um, tell you what your key morals are, what your key dreams are. <clears throat> and for me, it was certain times that I spent when I was had the time to, step back from my daily life and really think about where I was going holistically. And it happened to be during those times in prison, during those times where I've experienced failure that I had to step back. Success is great. And a lot of times when I've experienced success, um, it's been exhilarating, it opens other doors, but success has a way to just take the treadmill and up the speed on it. Uh, because when you're doing something hard that you're recognized for, the recognition for that is even a bigger task or even harder work. Um, take it to the next level. So you never step back. Failures is those moments where you kind of say, wait a second. Um, something so fundamentally, you know, something here has happened and I failed in a way where it's psychologically starving or even um, you might have lost money on investment. Things um, for me, going to prison as well. 
that you step back and say, wait a second, I need to really rethink what am I doing? Where am I going? How am I going about it? It's those moments that really force you to question who you are and the why um, and why you are. Hmm. So how so, old were you when you went to prison? Was this while you were at Moses Brown? No, I, I dropped out of my... I, I got a scholarship to Moses Brown my junior year. I dropped out at the beginning of my senior year. The first time I was arrested was near the end of my senior year. And I went to juvenile detention, but I didn't spend much time um, there. I was 17 years old at that time. Um, I already had a couple of dust-ups with the law, um, driving without licensing or maybe something or other, like a disorderly conduct or something to that effect. Um, and then shortly after 2020, I was arrested for a bigger case that would send me to prison for six and a half years. So from 20 to 26, I was in prison. Wow. So what was when you went in initially, I imagine you you didn't have the same mindset, right? You're coming out of the streets. You you had, uh, I would imagine you you initially started having more of a street mindset, right? Like, or, or did you, like, how long did it take for you to start making that shift? And, and what were the catalysts for that, right? To, mm-hmm. to start thinking beyond that life. Yeah, before, before going to prison, I always had it in my mind that I was going to go to prison at some point in my life or something worse. And I always thought, I hope it's not over five years, you know, but we'll see what happens. So I, I did have a street mentality where I felt prison yeah. was an inevitable um, think that I was going to face sooner or later or, or, or something worse. And when I got in, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it's jarring in the sense that you're, you're confined, you're not going home. But at the same time, it's like so many people, you know, that have been in that prison. And as soon as I got in, I think the first, you know, somebody yelled my name. It was a kid from my neighborhood. <laughs> hey, Andre. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it's familiar. It's a familiar role. So, I think I heard you refer, I I apologize, Mm -hmm. I I remember now uh, listening to one of your TED Talks, and you referred to it as a homecoming. Um, You know, yeah, you know, people, yeah, I I, I could see, I could see myself saying it, because it it, it felt like something that just happens to people like me, to people like us. Um, And the fact that when I go in, there's people that I knew greeting me already it's you know it, yeah it felt makes normal. it feel that way mm-hmm. yeah so it's not like I went in there and had this sort of epiphany things are slow moving one of the things is you know I'm a naturally curious person and I like to uh, occupy my time you know reading things I enjoy and doing things I enjoy you know so little by little here and there I would make it to the prison library and check out books or do some reading or do some tutoring on a volunteer basis to people doing GED and things like that and I would enjoy that. Um, and I would get a lot of the prison intellectuals, the prison um, people that are involved in the law, the lawyers that are in the, in the libraries, constantly invite me to, hey, why don't you come again and you know, um, share with us or, or, or build with us. And they were, they were smart dudes. It was, it was, I, I enjoyed that. But I didn't, I, I wasn't there yet. I was still kind of a street kid. I, was, I played a lot of sports. I, played cards. I did all the typical things that you would do um, in prison. And then as you begin to, for me, reading, I, I love literature. Um, mm. And literature is my psychology. It's books like Toni Morrison, books from Dostoevsky, but mm. books like, you know, Beloved, Song of Solomon, books that I loved reading in high school when I was doing the, you know, the honors classes or the, or the classes that the tracking program that I used, they used to do in Pawtucket. Um, and reading those books in prison again sort of helped me be able to reflect on my own life, reflect on the context, reflect on what it means for my family to come to this country. My father came undocumented to this country twice. Hmm. And he managed to get in, he managed to legalize his status. This is a person with little education um, very hard worker, um, worked minimum wage almost all his life. And I began to reflect on what it meant for me to be his oldest child in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a mom who had two brothers that were killed in Colombia, came to this country, 
um, worked extremely hard, was there for me all the time, and what it was for her to have all this children in prison. I had a younger brother that looked up to me, and um, I felt that I was influential in his life, and I began to think about all the ways that I led him wrong. And, you know, you start thinking about picking up the pieces of what you will do with that second chance. And when you begin to pick up those pieces, um, sometimes things happen that begin to hold you to account to the plan that you're making for yourself. For example, I used to tell my mother that I would like to go to college when I left prison or while I was in prison. And one of the reasons that I thought I could do it was that experience at Moses Brown. I did well academically and all those kids went to college and many right. went to the top colleges in this country. And I thought to myself, I was in class with them. You know, I, I could do this as well. And the response from my mother was, look, if you promise me that you'll go to school, I'll start taking college courses now at community college and community college of Rhode Island, take English classes, take other types of classes. And she would, that was her way to sort of create a, an unbreakable deal with me. If, mm -hmm. you, if I do this, you promise me that you'll do that. Yeah. And, you know, you know, you can't break those deals easily. Um, when I would tell, talk to her about entrepreneurship, um, she would tell me about the little things that she would try to do. Because my mother was a micro entrepreneur. My mother would buy jewelry and raffle it off. And the, the happy days at home was when she sold a lot of ra raffle tickets, but nobody yeah. won the jewelry. You know, she yeah. would always be doing little things to try to make additional income. So she would tell me the things that she was doing and we would build off that. And basically what she was doing was, look, I'm here supporting you, but the end of this deal is when you come home, you really try to make something of yourself because I'm, I'm being invested in you and I'm also sacrificing um, for you by the actions that I'm taking to show you that you need to be to help to account on your promises. And that was big. Um, things that happen sort of in a, in a pointing moment, I remember, and I've told this story before, being in a prison cell watching Primer Impacto and it was filming at the Rio Grande in Texas between the border of Mexico and Texas. And a young man was trying to cross the border and the river was extremely angry because it was, I think it was after rainfall and the like. And the young man was crossing. And while he's swimming, you could see his stroke becoming slower and weaker. And at a certain point, I'm thinking, obviously he's going to drown. And at a certain point, I'm thinking from the young man's perspective that he knows he's going to drown. And, you know, in Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, he has a, a novel called, you know, Chronicle with Death Foretold. Oh, but yeah. when you know you're going to die, you know you start having quick conversations between you and possibly your maker. And you say, God, if you give me to the other side of this river, I promise you that X, Y, and Z. I will be a good father. I will send money home to my family. I promise to make the most opportunity. If you get me to the other side of the river. And I thought about that young man having that conversation with his God, because at a certain point he knows he's going to die, but he has enough time of, of life to think about what he could do with his life. If only he could make it to that side of the river. And Pimeni Pacta showed that man drowned. And when that clip finished, I just stayed there for a long time and, thinking about that. And it impacted me a lot because I knew my father had made similar journeys through the high seas hmm. uh, to get to this country. Um, he came actually how Cubans come to this country, um, dropped off under a bridge in Miami, made it to the Northeast of this country. And he made it. And we, a lot of times we're here because of a fair amount of skill persistence, but a lot of times we're here um, out of just sheer luck. You know, my yeah. father made it alive. He told me being in the high seasons, though, one of the most scariest things, scariest experience of his life. And there's numerous times where I'm very lucky to be alive. Um, certain things have happened to me that I'm very lucky to be here and my, for my family um, to be here as well. And you can begin to reflect on that when you have enough time and you have enough context build up to be able to reflect on it in a way that is meaningful. Um, and sometimes when you have an agglomeration of luck, whether you call that kind of divine intervention of God or almost like a religious experience, I think, you know, you're given this gift and you got to do something with this gift. And a lot of that thought, you know, happened while I was in prison. 
you know, it's and it's still get a refund. I still think about it to this day. You know, what am I doing in my life? How come? And I, I reflect on tough moments in my life and the soul searching that happened during those moments because that soul searching is, is continuous. So yeah. when you were in prison, did you did you have some target as you were making this shift of what you wanted to be or how you wanted to get there or, or what what did you do to really start that path forward? So this is sometimes when you think about kind of the difference between tactics and strategy, and I still struggle between the, the, the right and line between the two, because I had no clue and would have never, ever thought I would make it to uh, an Ivy League school. I would make it to a top law school in this country. Uh, I would go on to work and I've worked on cases to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, <clears throat> and I would have never, ever thought um, um, I would get opportunities like that. I mean, I've worked in Congress, um, on the Judiciary Committee, on the House Judiciary Committee in Congress. I've been invited for events at the White House. It's it's incredible, uh, you know, incredible life. But no, you know, like when I was first starting, um, I took technical classes in prison. I took how to become an electrician, you know, straight A's on that. I took some community college courses, how to put together you know, uh, a small research paper, did well on that. I just wanted to do well. And I actually, when I was leaving prison, I was trying to get an electrician's license because it paid $25 an hour at that time, which is you know, really great. Um, so I was just really working hard every day to just do the best at whatever was coming before me. Um, when I went, my first time up for parole, I was denied. And the only time I went up at that time, when I went up for parole, I really wanted to go to school. And I told the parole board I wanted to go to school. But all I had was a letter from the Community College of Rhode Island, which to them wasn't very impressive because it's it's open enrollment. So usually right. everybody gets in. Um, but it's the only thing I had at the moment. So what I did set out to do was the second time I wanted to have an acceptance letter from a four-year college. Um, so I worked really hard on that during that year, and I ended up getting accepted to maybe two colleges, two or three colleges, tons of colleges um, rejected me, but I got into the University of Rhode Island with the condition that I would do my classes in the Providence campus, not the Newport campus, which to me was fine. It was cheaper, and um, it was closer to home, <clears throat> so, you know, I went there and just did well and have at the end of the first semester, a teacher told me and really encouraged me to apply to Brown University, which was the only transfer application I submitted. And, you know, that acceptance changed the course of my life. Hmm. And I, I, I don't want to like, there's so much out there. And so I, I, I love, I encourage folks to go out there and look you up. So, I, so I'm going to do you a little bit of disjustice here and, and just fast forward a little bit. And at Brown, eventually led to Yale Law School and, 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 and then all of the other accomplishments that you just kind of named off. Is that is that right? Yeah, I went to yeah. Brown, yeah. Um, then was lucky enough to go to Yale, then went into a law firm and, and practiced right. law at one of, the, uh, one of the top law firms in the country. Right. Congrats, man. I, I mean, as a fellow Central Falls, Central Fallian, I guess, yeah, it, it makes me proud to hear this. But the uh, only reason why I wanted to get through it, because there is so much out there already, but I, I'd love to know, you you clearly are very passionate about education, and you've done a lot around that as well. <clears throat> can can you define what, and, and and I know when you first started, I don't know if you're still doing it, but I, I remember donating some money to, you, you, you started a nonprofit, right, for education, mm -hmm. for prisoners and everything. Are you still yeah. doing that? Yeah, yeah, the nonprofit is actually, I started a nonprofit uh, fairly quickly after graduating law school. So when okay. I got into the law firm, I used basically some, the first money I got to law firm to start the nonprofit. It's called the Transcendent yeah. Through Education Foundation. That's it. And we work, we work in, in Rhode Island prisons um, in conjunction with the Community College of Rhode Island and the education folks at the RIDOC to provide college education courses and annual scholarship cycle and some workshops that we do for people to apply to four-year or to higher education institutions um, from prison or as they get out of prison with a criminal uh, background. Yeah. 
And then there's been more, you know, with like social entrepreneurship and education and, and other things you've been involved in. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, but the recurring theme there is obviously education, right? The, mm-hmm. you, you're very passionate about education and providing it, it seems, to, to different folks. It, do, do you think, and it's pretty clear with your background, why that's so important to you, right? But um, I'm wondering if if the circumstances that happened to you didn't happen, would you still feel that passion? Do you? And oh. I know that's hard to... Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I would. Maybe it would be expressed a little bit differently. So yeah. um, I'm very passionate about economic power and education. Yeah. Uh, but to me, those are just sort of two of the root branches of, you know, sort of people living to their full potential. Um, And when I think about people realizing the potential is pointing to me because we come from neighborhoods where we think about a lot of potential that doesn't get the opportunity to fully blossom. And usually the, the, the two main ways potential in these communities blossom are folks that make it out through education or folks that you know, their entrepreneurial or their hard work and efforts allow them to build a nest that's sufficient to get their children or even sometimes themselves out of the circumstances that they live in and to be able to bring more economic empowerment to that community. So to me, no matter what circumstances I would grow up, I think I'm somebody that admires discipline, hard work, um, curiosity. Um, so that would have been writ large and all that is under the umbrella of you know just people feel, fulfilling their potential and because of the way i grew up i think economic empowerment and education kind of are at the forefront of that so how are you leading that effort how are you promoting economic empowerment yeah so edu- through education we've we started this nonprofit in 2012 and i have two co-founders an individual who's actually um, one of the main persons in prison who used to try to bring me to the prison library. He did 12 years in prison. And then later on, uh, he graduated from Tulane Law School. He's, mm. um, he's, a high, he's an executive at a nonprofit in New Orleans doing really, really great work. And another friend who actually did, I think, five years altogether and then graduated from Roger Williams Law School, um, even worked at a time as a Providence City solicitor and now has a practice in Providence. So we formed the nonprofit where on an annual basis, we're supporting several 20 person classes. So it's a cohort of 20 people that go through college classes inside prison. And then we give individual scholarships to folks. We also do, as I was mentioning earlier, a series of workshops because you want to go into, you want to show the folks what the college application process looks like and where they're gonna have the stumbling blocks because of the criminal conviction. Particularly, especially when it comes to financial aid. If you're a person that's, if you come from low income settings, you get a relatively okay grades. Um, There's good financial aid out there for you, but you have to manage it really well because you get one shot at it. If you mess up that financial aid, you know, becomes yeah. really, really difficult to get yourself out of that hole. But if you do it well, you could actually go to school full time and be able to cover your living costs. So it's something that I try to preach them a lot because I did. When I first came home from prison, I had to get a job and I was working minimum wage at 7.25 an hour, cutting fabric. Um, when And I had to do that until classes day. But when I began classes, I managed my financial aid, some public assistance as well that I qualified for. So between financial aid, public assistance, I managed it where I was able to go to school full time. And I think a lot of people behoove themselves to, to see how they can make that happen. And so we run workshops like that because I think it's, it's extremely important. So that's one thing that we do. On the economic empowerment, so my background is I was an antitrust lawyer, securities litigation antitrust lawyer for about five years. Then I went and I became general counsel of financial services company. Um, it's called kind of in the exchange traded product space. Later on, I wanted to. St- I started a, a startup where we did social impact investing in Latin America, particularly in Colombia. So we would raise funds in the United States, and we would deploy them to projects in Colombia that, for example, were bringing clean water to new areas, or that were mm. doing <clears throat> something in the recycling economy, or something to abate. Um, um, kind of the climate issues that are the, the detrimental climate issues that are going on. And we've helped close to 100 companies during that time. 
we shut it, we shut it, the company down recently, actually, for a couple of reasons, including one that in the last seven months, um, the funding environment for these several companies have just drastically gotten worse. And the interest rate and exchange rate environment for the countries they're dealing with just oh. imploded too. So for example, the Colombian peso has lost almost half its value right. against the dollar in the last about eight to nine months. So it might be like you know, 40 to 50%. And that was really put in stress on us. So, you know, we wanted to look at where was our investors' money? You know, did it make sense to liquidate the company or try to have it survive during this downturn that was going to hit, that was going to make operating so much more challenging for raising funds, for attracting talent, for, for a couple of, you know, of reasons that was going to make it challenging for us. So we decided to close it down. Uh, you know, we... We're, we're proud of the work that we did. And it's, it's still work that I think about often and I want to come back to. Um, so those were the two main two main ways that we were working on it. I got to, you know, after I think about kind of what's next on the economic power front, you know, I, I haven't, I'm, I'm thinking about that now uh, because I, you know, I still feel like there's something to be done. There's something that I need to do there. Hmm. So then you you essentially by closing that down you you must have a lot more free time now then right what what are you doing yeah yeah I wish I, I had a lot so it's one of the things with three kids um you know so I have three kids and kids have an intense social calendar right so I have a nine year old a six year old and a one year old you know birthday parties my daughter's in my daughter's in competitive gymnastics so she travels my boy does taekwondo so it's a lot of running around so i wanted to take some time to be with them um also i have been backed up in a lot of personal work so one of the things and we, we talk about kind of these laws in your life because i shut the company that was the first time i had to kind of get checked out um health-wise um and actually you know i had a, a I'll find out next week. They, I had to get a colonoscopy sort of on an expedited basis because there was an issue going on. Oh. And they removed some polyps hmm. uh, for me. And I'll find out if they were cancers or anything next week. Uh, but I, if I didn't shut down that company, if it was going well, I don't know when I'm going to go into a doctor. Um, and sometimes, you know, the time has allowed me to kind of do certain things. I'm like, whoa, I wasn't taking care of myself in certain ways. Yeah. You know, allow me to think about these things that I wasn't doing. Um, so yeah, so with the time I've been able to uh, take care of my health, I'm still doing some other kind of health screenings before I sort of ramp up my schedule. I'm doing some writing. So I'm trying to do a little bit of writing as well. About, oh, cool. Um, Fiction uh, legal. or not? Um, right now it's more, I'm, I'm doing some writing around some like legal issues that interest me. Because okay. as I read about issues that interest me, I also think about both legal and financial issues that interest me. I begin to think about what do I want my next career move to look like? Are you getting any closer to that? I, I don't know. No, not yet. And, and, and I, have, I have a little bit of time. I'm, I'm in a lucky position where I don't have to, you know, figure it out, you know, next month. But, you know, in the, within the next six months, I want to really think about what I want to do next. You've got a couple of terminal degrees have you thought about teaching at the university level uh, you know once in a while i think about teaching probably like at community college but you know the pay at those community colleges you know the way we pay teachers and professors is really right you know, you just kind of mess up and even at, at the university level for me to get to call my way into a kind of the university positions that pay well. And even if they pay well, they pay less than I would have been I was making in the past. It is, it becomes, it, it, it's, it's not easy to crack. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I would like to teach at community college. I would love to see like the kids, you know, like my brother when he was going to community college, I would love to teach in front of those kids to see where they can go. Um, you know, but I have a family. I'm a first generation professional. My wife is a first-generation professional. We're first-generation um, wealth builders for our family. I just had a startup for the last four years where I gave up a salary um, right. to do the work. I invested some of my own funds. So, you know, sometimes our circumstances still sort of um, limit some of our options. 
Sure. I'm not, you know, I, nobody needs to feel sorry for me, but, you know, I think folks like myself uh, would be an asset to community colleges. Yeah. Uh, I think we could get a lot of those hard charging folks that, you know, are not sure if school's going to pay off, but they're there, they think it will. Um, and then when they, when folks like us, that makes it real to them, <clears throat> can show them, I think we're a great asset, more so than, than <clears throat> in fancier four-year colleges, because fancy four-year colleges, the kids, for the most part, have a support system around them. Uh, but these community colleges, I, I would love to teach, but quite frankly, you know, I wouldn't be able to deal with the pay. Gotcha. All right. Well, we could probably keep going for a while, but we're at that, that time where we like to ask everybody four questions that we're now calling the Wayfinder Four. So you, you ready for that? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. What is one hack that you use in your daily life? Um, you know, for my daily life, I use meditation apps. Oh, good. And, Do you have a favorite? Yeah. I use Calm. Calm, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I use Calm, and I'm a Peloton guy, so we, we have a Peloton at home. And staying physically active and the meditation app it helps a lot. That's good. What about a favorite? It could be book, movie, play, sport, whatever. You know, so for, for the book, I'll say two. And one of them is really, so you see this movie that um, everything, every, everywhere, all at once. I keep hearing about it. I haven't seen it yet. It's, it's a really, really interesting movie. It's okay. kind of this lady that kind of exists in multiple universes and see what her life could have been. Okay. Um, and there's a book called the Midnight Library that takes that concept and deals with it a little bit differently. Both, both the movie and the book are terrific. So the Midnight Library is a book by, about this young woman who tries to commit suicide and she finds herself kind of in a purgatory state, but it's a huge library. And every book she takes out is a different iteration of her life, um, of what her life could have been. It's kind of like this everything, every, every I forget how exactly the title of the movie is, but yeah. everything, everywhere, all at once, um, which deals with it a little bit different, but it's about all the permutations your life could have taken um, and how that impacts how you view your own life. Because you, you're always viewing your own life against these counterfactuals of, if this wouldn't have happened to me, if I would have got lucky here, if I didn't have that failure. And it deals with this subject that I think... Um, we all struggle with. So that one, The Midnight Library is the book. But I also plug, I recently listened to Viola Davis's oh, yeah. Finding Me. Yeah. I tell you, man. And I, she's from Central Falls. So yeah, Viola yeah. Davis is from our hometown. Um, that that memoir was raw. Yeah. Like it, listening to that, I would have to put it down sometimes and write a little bit about my own life. Because it, you know, you felt that you could feel the relief that she was getting by putting her story down on paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I really enjoyed it. That's, That's awesome. Good. I will have to check that out. What is one piece of advice that you'd give your 25 year old self? I think is, is this that I've been thinking about lately a lot. And I've been thinking about lately in the context of, you know, I just close up a startup. So to me, um, it didn't go as planned. It's a failure that I think about. And I think mm. about my role in that failure. Where, what could I have done differently? And I really think, I've been thinking about a lot about the line between kind of strategy and tactics. Because sometimes when you're dealing with a company, dealing with, you're so caught up in the everyday, just putting out fires and the, the rigorous homework, the homework that you hate that needs to be done. Um, things that I would call kind of this tactics area that sometimes you don't have a time to step back if we need holistic about the strategy. Um, so it really is policing that line because I think even, you know, I started my educational journey at 26 after coming out of prison because it was the first time that I thought, I was like, look, I'm fine with being broke for the next four years. I mean, I had a hoopty like, I didn't care, like it didn't bother me, which my 19 year old self wouldn't have been able to make that choice because he would have been too stuck in the everyday, the tactics. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't be able to step back and think about the strategy. Like, 
you know, what is the, the bigger picture here? That and another thing that I see, the people that are able to take these calculated risks while protecting their downside in the world realm of finance, things about asymmetric risks. And so I've been, th I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And if I tell my 20 year old self, that concept is an extremely powerful concept. And I think it's even more powerful when you don't have sort of, when you don't have much and when you begin to build wealth under you. Because a lot of times, um, and, and the mentality needed for both as you go up that ladder, so it's, it's different. When you don't have much, sometimes you take a lot of risks, a lot of gambles, because if the gamble doesn't pay off, oh, the downside is not that much, and you can start from scratch relatively easy. But as you go up that ladder, the risks have much more consequences because you're building something underneath now. So there's people that really know how to look at risk and know what risk it takes because they have disproportionate payoffs relative to the, the, the risks, the downsides of the risks. Um, and that's like, it, I think it's extremely powerful for folks that grow up with nothing, begin to build wealth, and they have to recalibrate the way of, that they take risks because they still have that hustle mentality where they're willing to lay it all on the line. And that could be, you know, quite detrimental. So Andres, what is it that you think keep people from being happy? I think it is not having the necessary tools, emotional tools, psychological tools, and, and intellectual tools to have a wide range and more encompassing perspective about themselves and about life. And being able to use that perspective to give them a sense of peace in the life they're living now. So when we go back to these books like Midnight Library or the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once is the characters are really dealing with kind of this existential unhappiness that comes with always trying to think about the counterfactuals of your life. And sometimes you allow that type of thinking to get away from you when you haven't developed the tools to rein that in and to be able to both think about that counterfactual while being at peace and happy with your own life. And it is a lot of reading. To me, to me, it was like I found it through a lot of literature. I still find that. I find it a lot of times so journaling. I have to, as you can see the way I talk sometimes, I'm, I'm forming thoughts as I talk, um, but they're thoughts that are deep to me and important to me. So sometimes I have to write them down to get them all down and to begin to organize them. And a lot of times we have these tools that float around, but we don't know how to get them and organize them to use it on ourselves, to allow us to say, well, you know, my life would have been better, obviously, if I would have graduated Moses Brown, hopefully near the top of my class, gotten uh, a top degree from um, one of the universities in the school and already be at another field than I am, you know, in my actual life where I started at 26 years old as a convicted um, you know, convicted for a, a felony where I've had to really knock on doors, et cetera. When I'm able to say, but this other kid at 26 years old has had very enriching experiences. I mean, I've had people that in yeah. the streets I didn't get along with in prison, give me like share their last piece of food with me. That's like, wow. when you look back on life, that's like a very enriching experience. But as yeah. you're in the midst of, of living your life, you don't, you don't see it that way. And later on in life, you would take those experiences over the money. But having the perspective to try to weigh those experiences against each other and weigh them against this hypothetical counterfactual, which a life can be, I think drives a lot of people, you know, a little bit, you know, crazy. And it, it causes them to be sometimes hyper competitive. And I'm hyper competitive, right? So we want to do really well but sometimes i have to let the competition go and just kind of be present and happy and content with my own self and it was it was kind of you know literature and it was kind of speeding smart people that have told me how they dealt with it and it's also haven't had failures in my life i think if my life would have been a string of successes i would probably have been you know not a great person <laughs> you know I uh, I really appreciate that you're bringing up literature because I think we often, 
on this show, like a lot of us are entrepreneurs here or want to be entrepreneurs. And, and we, when we think of like a book or anything we offer in a, you know, talking about nonfiction and that gets thrown around a lot. And, and I think we look at that very directly, but I, I know there's been times in my life when I've looked at literature, some of the best classes I ever took, Latin American literature was probably my favorite class I ever took in college. And, um, and, and, and every time I get into it, it really makes me think more. And I can, I can see that with you. It's, it's a very reflective uh, you have a very reflective way about you that I think only literature is going to give you that. Whereas nonfiction, we, you know, we, it just tells you what to do and there's no real, it's like a manual. There's no real thinking. There's no building that critical mindset that you need from that. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important. The, uh, and it's also very enjoyable, right? But so uh, Andres, tell us uh, to, to close out here, you know, if people want to learn more about you, how, how can they reach out if it's allowable or, you know, how can they learn more about you? So for our nonprofit, we have a website, uh, www.ttef.org. So you can see some of our work in the nonprofit area um, on that end. I'm on LinkedIn. So if somebody just puts my name on LinkedIn, um, yeah. they'll have my bio and they can reach out to me. Great. Thank you. Perfect. Andres, can't thank you enough, man. As you were a very thoughtful, insightful guy. And I'm sure the listeners are going to get a lot of, lot of, lot from hearing your story. So appreciate oh, you coming pleasure. on, man. My Absolutely. Pleasure. If nothing else, I believe that the uh, podcast downloads in Central Falls are going to go way up from here. So that's <laughs> gonna, we're going to have that demographic uh, on lockdown after this. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Andres. It's been a real honor. We hope you've enjoyed The Wayfinder Show. If you got value from this episode, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will allow us to help more people find their way to live more authentic and exciting lives. We'll catch you on the next episode.